Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 20th. In today's news, a 4-4 Supreme Court split on a voting case shows why confirming Amy Coney Barrett is such a huge deal. The Justice Department indicts six Russian intelligence officers in several high-profile cyber attacks. And our newest poll shows North Carolina is a dead heat. But first, the big idea. President Trump dismissed precautions to prevent the spread of the coronavirus yesterday and attacked the nation's top infectious disease expert as a disaster, arguing that people are getting tired of all the focus on a pandemic that has killed about 220,000 Americans and continues to infect tens of thousands of people in communities across the country every day. The president claimed that voters don't want to hear anymore from the country's scientific leaders about the virus, responding angrily to a critical interview Sunday night that Fauci gave to CBS's 60 Minutes. Later in the day, the president again attacked Fauci, the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, mocking him for his botched ceremonial first pitch at Nationals Park on opening day and misrepresenting several of the doctor's positions on coronavirus in tweets. Trump's comments and his aggressive travel schedule, which continued Monday with two stops in Arizona as Joe Biden stayed at home in Delaware, is part of a broader and more aggressive bet that the American people will reward his projection of strength and general defiance toward the virus, which hospitalized the president for three days and infected many of his top aides earlier this month. Michael Shearer and Josh Dossi report that Trump is expected to do three or four rallies every day starting this weekend. Trump's been barnstorming Western states in the last few days, while Biden has stayed out of public view to prepare for Thursday's presidential debate and avoid the large crowds amid the pandemic. Trump is taking a less rigorous preparation plan for the debate and is unlikely to do extensive formal preparations. Instead, the president is maintaining an in-person campaign schedule that will take him to Florida after the debate for several more events. On Monday afternoon, Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien wrote a letter to the Commission on Presidential Debates seeking to move the conversation in the final debate away from domestic issues like the coronavirus, the economy and climate change to only discuss foreign policy. A few hours later, the commission said that it will mute Trump's and Biden's microphones during parts of the debate at Belmont University in Nashville. The commission said it will give both Trump and Biden two minutes apiece to speak uninterrupted at the start of each of the six segments of the night. A period of open discussion will then follow until the next segment. Trump's campaign has repeatedly opposed this idea. The Trump campaign, though, says it plans to go ahead with the debate despite the changes. Against this backdrop of politicking, we can't forget the pain of the pandemic. A new study from Columbia University shows that 8 million of our fellow Americans have plunged into poverty since May. The CARES Act, which gave Americans a one-time stimulus check of $1,200 and unemployed workers an extra $600 a week helped offset growing poverty rates in the spring, but its effects were short-lived and have now worn off. The federal government defines the poverty line as when a family of four earns $26,200 a year or less. The Columbia researchers say the number of Americans in this category has now reached 55 million. 55 million making less than 26 k a year. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi says there was progress in talks with the Trump administration as her self-imposed deadline of tonight looms. The House Speaker said on MSNBC that the Trump administration agreed to her proposed language that she demanded relating to addressing racial disparities in the virus's impact. 
Her chief interlocutor from the Trump administration is Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who's traveling in Israel today. He and Pelosi spoke for roughly an hour on Monday and are expected to talk again in the next few hours. But Trump himself seemed to downplay chances for a good outcome in Arizona, and Senate Republicans still remain uninterested. On the public health side of things, the CDC last night finally issued formal recommendations that passengers wear masks when they're on airplanes, buses, and public transit. This guidance was issued in response to pressure from lobbyists for the airline industry, but the recommendations fall far short of what transportation industry leaders and their unions had sought. The CDC previously drafted an order under the agency's quarantine powers that would have required all passengers and employees to wear masks on all forms of public transit, but the White House blocked the order. And the TSA announced that it screened more than one million air travelers on Sunday. That's the first time since March 17th that airport security nationwide has seen more than a million daily passengers. Here in D.C., even as more people hit the not-so-friendly skies, public health officials added eight states to the city's list of locations considered high-risk for travel, including Arizona, where the president was, Massachusetts, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Technically, here in D.C., you're required to self-quarantine for two weeks if you go to one of those high-risk states. But there are now 39 states that have this designation. Since infection rates are rising in many cities from coast to coast, school leaders are contemplating changing their reopening plans. Some classrooms and even entire schools that have opened are now closing again in response to outbreaks. In some cities, opposition from teachers unions to going back to work has slowed efforts to reopen buildings. But overall, we just did a tally and we found that the trend is now solidly toward more in-person schooling. Of the 50 biggest districts in America, 24 have now resumed in-person classes for large groups of students, and 11 others plan to do so in the coming weeks. Four more have opened or plan to reopen for small groups of students who need extra attention. Laura Meckler and Valerie Strauss report that many are in Florida and Texas, of the places that have reopened, where Republican governors are requiring in-person classes. But schools are also reopening in New York City, Salt Lake, Greenville, South Carolina, Returns are planned soon in Charlotte, Baltimore, and Denver. Just 11 of the 50 largest districts in the country are still fully remote with no immediate plans to change that. And some good news in this regard from New York City. New data show a surprisingly small number of positive cases among staff and school children in the city three weeks into their in-person school year. Out of about 16,000 staff members and students tested randomly by the school system in the first week of its testing regimen, the city has gotten back results and found that there were only 28 positives. 20 were staff, and only 8 were students. Meanwhile, the race for a cure continues. British scientists this week are launching the world's first human challenge trials for COVID-19. They will infect healthy volunteers with the virus in the hope of further speeding the way to a vaccine. This research, which is being led by Imperial College London, is a gutsy gambit, given that people will be submitting themselves to the virus with no surefire treatment, and the virus can kill. Volunteers will be given a laboratory-grown strain of the live virus while being quarantined in a secure unit at the Royal Free Hospital in London. They'll undergo daily, even hourly tests. The initial phase of the study will seek to determine the minimal amount of virus necessary to cause an active, measurable infection. Meanwhile, back here in the states out west, California's Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom announced that the country's biggest state will not distribute any coronavirus vaccine approved by the federal government until the state government has conducted its own independent review to confirm that it's effective and works and safe.
And as a reminder that this really is a worldwide crisis, overnight, Argentina became the fifth country in the world to surpass one million cases, joining the United States, India, Brazil, and Russia. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, the Supreme Court denied a Republican request to stop an extended deadline for mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. The justice's action involved an arcane voting practice, but carried outsized importance because of Pennsylvania's pivotal role in the election. It prompted a fierce battle between the state's Democrats and Republicans. It also showed a precariously balanced Supreme Court, which has only eight members after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it also shows the potential importance of Trump's nominee to replace her, Amy Coney Barrett. The court was tied on the Republican request, 4-4, which means that the effort failed. The court's four conservative, most conservative justices, I should say, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, said they would have granted the GOP request, but that takes five votes, which means Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the liberals, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. Bob Barnes, our Supreme Court beat reporter, says neither side explained its reasoning, which often happens in emergency requests, but the outcome shows the decisive role Barrett will play, assuming she's controlled by the Republican-controlled Senate next week. Trump said he wants her on the court in case there is a split on litigation arising from the election so that she can vote his way. And the legal wrangling continues in lower courts. These are some of the kinds of cases that could end up before the Supremes if Barrett's confirmed. A federal appeals court just ruled in Texas, for example, that that state can reject mail-in ballots over mismatched signatures without giving voters a chance to appeal. And in North Carolina, a weeks-long dispute over mail ballots returned without a witness signature came to an end yesterday with county election administrators allowed to resume the process to fix or cure thousands of deficient ballots that have been left in limbo as the state continues early voting. Despite all the legal maneuvering, thousands of voters flocked to the polls throughout Florida yesterday on the state's first day of in-person voting, despite heavy rains, adding to evidence that Americans are unusually eager and excited to cast ballots this year. With early voting underway across America, nearly 30 million people have already voted with two weeks to go until the election. This is according to a new tally by political scientist Michael McDonald at the University of Florida. 30 million means that more than one in five of the people who voted in 2016 have already voted. We're already at 20 percent of our 2016 turnout. Number two. The Justice Department unsealed charges yesterday against six Russian intelligence officers in several high-profile cyber attacks. These include the disruption of Ukraine's power grid and the release of a mock ransomware virus that caused billions in damage. The alleged hackers are members of the GRU, the same military intelligence agency previously charged in connection with efforts to interfere in our 2016 presidential election. Authorities allege that the GRU group also leaked hacked emails of individuals involved in French President Emmanuel Macron's 2017 campaign, targeted the organizations investigating the poisoning of Russian operative Sergei Skripal, and hacked computers that were supporting the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea in retaliation for the Russian doping scandal being exposed. Number three, a brand new Washington Post ABC News poll just out shows that Trump and Biden are running in a dead heat in North Carolina, with the economy booing the president's candidacy and the pandemic boosting his challenger. This is one of the key electoral targets in November. They're at 49 percent to 48 percent among likely voters. North Carolina is one of two southern battlegrounds, along with Florida, that the president won in 2016, and they're crucial in his path to get 270 electoral votes. Four years ago, Trump won North Carolina by four points. 
and its 15 electoral votes with it. If he doesn't get the Tar Heel state, his path to victory becomes significantly more difficult. Trump's 47% job approval is slightly better in North Carolina than it is nationally. When asked which of the candidates would best handle the two major issues, Trump's slightly more trusted than Biden to deal with the economy by six points. Biden is more trusted to handle the coronavirus by eight points. Biden's margin on trust on the pandemic is smaller than nationally, while Trump's margin on the economy is bigger than his national number. Two weeks from Election Day, the race in North Carolina is a jump ball. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 20th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.